This morning, we uh, continue our study of the book of Acts, second week in, in Acts, and uh, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, if you want to begin turning there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to bless you with a Bible this morning at the info bar. We've got plenty of free ones we'd love to give you there. Everybody needs a Bible. On the eve of the Great Awakening in this uh, soon-to-be country in the 1730s and 40s, that great spiritual revival movement that swept through the American colonies, the church here found itself in a very tumultuous place. The so-called enlightenment had led many to question not just the Bible, but all religious authority. And as a result, the surrounding culture was growing increasingly secular, declining into moral deprivation. Jonathan Edwards diagnosed the state of the colonies in that day as a far more degenerate time than ever before in history. We're still the existing church, early 18th century church, wasn't offering many solutions. That church was marked by empty ritualism and sectarian division at the time. George Whitfield famously quipped that many colonists had stopped attending church because dead men were preaching to them. Does that sound familiar at all? To the remaining faithful on the eve of revival, the fate of the 18th century church must have seemed a lot like the fate of the 21st century church often seems to us today, as though God may be just giving up on us. He's going to work elsewhere where the Spirit is moving and people are actually responding to the gospel. And yet... God, in the, in the way that only he can, God was paradoxically preparing his church in this country at that time for an awakening, for a supernatural, extraordinary movement of his Holy Spirit. He's preparing them. So perhaps that's hope for us this morning. God has not given up on the 21st century American church either. But friends, Here's the key for this morning. The only way that our own society's rampant secularization, moral decline, religious apathy, the only way that our problems in the church, our division, our hypocrisy, our dead pastors can be turned around is by a movement of God's spirit. Nothing less will suffice. That is what we must be praying for today. Next week, we're going to witness together in Acts chapter 2, the single greatest movement of the Holy Spirit in the history of the church at Pentecost. But this morning, we're going to consider together the beginnings of that movement, the preparation for that movement of the Spirit in the last half of the chapter before, chapter 1. We cannot control or manipulate God's Spirit. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is like the wind. It blows where it wants. And yet God has made it clear to us through his word that there are certain ways in which we can make ourselves more or less open and responsive to the Spirit's activity in our lives. I like the way that David Mathis describes it in his book, Habits of Grace. Mathis writes, I can turn on a faucet, but I don't make the water flow. We can't make the grace or the spirit of God flow, but he has given us certain pipes 
to open expectantly. That's the analogy. God is free to liberally dispense his spirit without even the least bit of cooperation or preparation on our part, but God does have his regular channels through which he most often works. So this morning, we're going to examine six of those regular channels together. We can't make the wind blow or the water flow, but we can turn on the faucet and wait expectantly for a movement of God's Spirit. And there are six faucets, six pipes, that we are going to examine this morning that we need to open in order to best prepare for a movement of the Holy Spirit. So would you stand with me as you're able, out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we will Read from Acts chapter 1, as I said, verses 12 through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who having accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit. God, would you now be in our midst? Holy Spirit, would you illuminate our hearts to understand, to interpret, to internalize, to apply your word just as, Holy Spirit, you inspired Luke to write them 2,000 years ago, to remember, record them for us. Would you open our hearts to your word, Holy Spirit? For Jesus' namesake and glory we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If we want to see, expect to see an outpouring of God's spirit, 
the first faucet, the first pipe that we need to open is that of obedience. Number one, we must obey the Lord. <clears throat> we read in verses 12 and 13 here, Then they, the apostles, they returned to Jerusalem, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Now, back in verse 8, last week, Jesus had foreshadowed two important events that are going to happen next week, in chapter 2. They're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and they're going to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. But before the apostles could be filled with the Spirit and go witness, back in verse 4, Jesus had given them two even more immediate orders that they are to follow, instructions. Number one, return to Jerusalem so that, number two, they can wait for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what they do here in verse 12. They go back to Jerusalem, to the upper room, probably the very same upper room in which Jesus had eaten the, the Last Supper with them and promised to send them his spirit in the Gospels. They go there and they wait. Verse 12, they stay. Now, to reiterate, again, the Spirit's work in your life, in my life, it does not depend on our obedience. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit comes upon pagan sorcerers like Balaam, wicked kings like Nebuchadnezzar. In spite of their disobedience, God still works through them to accomplish his own sovereign purposes. The Spirit truly blows where it will. God, if God wants to use talking donkeys to accomplish his purposes, he'll do it. He'll do it. God can make water flow even from closed pipes. And yet, most often, he chooses to use open pipes, like the pipe of obedience. Later, in Acts chapter 5, Peter shares the gospel with the Jewish council, and then he declares, we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to who? To those who obey God. God gives his spirit to those who obey him. Now, does this mean that God has a big long checklist, to-do list, like 613 laws in the Old Testament, and that if you measure up, if you can manage to keep enough of them, half, I don't know, 307, if you, if you keep more than half, if your good outweighs your bad, if your obedience outweighs your disobedience, then God will reward you with the gift of his spirit. No, that's not how it works, friends. The Bible says that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes only the knowledge of sin. The whole point of the law is to be a mirror. The law is a moral mirror for you and me to look into and realize our inability to keep it, our insufficiency to keep it, therefore our need for a savior. So then, what is our obedience? Well, Romans 16, 26 defines it for us. It is the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. <clears throat> Do you know what the most important commandment in the Bible is? It's a trick question. I bet you don't. <laughs> because when I said that, I bet most of your minds, like if you had asked me, our minds go to Matthew 22, where Jesus says the greatest commandment in the law is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? But Romans 3 already told us that all the law is good for is recognizing how sinful we are, how much we don't love God with all our hearts, mind, soul, strength. No, the single most important commandment, not just in the law, but in the Bible, 
is found in John 6, 29. Lesser known, but very important verse. Where the crowd asked Jesus, how do we make sure we're doing the works of God? How do we make sure we're following the law? Jesus, how do we make sure we're, we're good enough? We make the cut. You remember how Jesus replies to him? John six twenty nine. His reply is simple. This is the work of God, that you believe in me. It's the obedience of faith. It's the only obedience that can save you, friend. On your own, you will never measure up. God's will for you, the works of God, is that you repent of your inability and that you trust in Jesus as your Savior. If you want to see God move and work powerfully in your life, the very first thing you must do is trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Obey God by believing in his son, giving your life to him in faith. Number two, we pray. How do you prepare for a movement of the Holy Spirit? The obedience of faith is the first pipe you need to open, but perhaps the single most important channel to make sure you've unclogged if the spirit is going to flow is prayer it's the pipeline of prayer we read here in verses 13 and 14 peter john james andrew philip the 11 disciples turned apostles they're all there and with one accord they were devoting themselves to what to prayer to prayer the niv translates they were constantly in prayer. The King James, they continued in prayer. The NASB, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. It's because the Greek wording here suggests an ongoing, persevering prayer. Perseverance in prayer. For how long? Anybody know? Another Bible trivia question. Ten days. Ten days. You can do the math. Pentecost occurred 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. Acts 1-3 informed us that Jesus appeared to them for 40 days after he had resurrected before ascending back into heaven. So 50 minus 40. Math scholars, 10 days. For them to wait and pray for the coming of God's Spirit. And have you ever prayed? Have you ever continually devoted yourself to persevering prayer for 10 days? How about 10 minutes? That's hard, isn't it? I pray after the sermon every Sunday, two or three minutes in, half of y'all are asleep, sinners. <laughs> it's hard. That kind of perseverance in prayer for 10 whole days. Why did God make them persevere in prayer for 10 days? Why not send the Holy Spirit immediately? Immediately after Jesus ascended. Remember, Jesus had left them with this massive mission. Take the gospel all the way to the ends of the earth. You have to believe. Peter in particular, right? Take charge, Peter. That he, he had to be restless for all ten of those days, thinking, man, we've got to get going. The word's got to get out. What are we waiting on? Jesus, come on, send the Spirit. Let's get going. Same Peter who thought Jesus needed his help when he was arrested, so he chopped off the Roman soldier's ear. This was after Jesus had had to rebuke him, call him Satan for declaring that Peter wouldn't let them crucify Jesus. 
Any other take charge, type A, uh, Peter type personalities out there, leaders? Is that just me? Just I'm the only leader in the room. <laughs> Any of y'all struggle to sit still for 10 minutes? You want to go? Like, let's, let's, let's get going. Much less 10 days, simply wait and pray. Why did God make them wait? Well, on a practical level, perhaps God was waiting until just the right time when Jerusalem would be its most crowded during this festival of Pentecost to maximize the number of people who could hear the gospel as it was proclaimed when the Holy Spirit descends in chapter 2. But I want to suggest on a spiritual level that God makes them wait because he wanted them to be absolutely certain that what he was about to do through them, this greatest of all movements, in the history of the church, that it depended completely on God. God was reminding these apostles that they depended completely on him. He was reminding them that as Jesus had cautioned them in John 15, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do little, nothing. You can do nothing apart from Jesus. Maybe this morning you feel like you're stuck in a holding pattern. You're waiting. You see this vision of what your life could be. You think it should be. You can't figure out what God is waiting on. You want to be parents. You know you would make great parents. You keep crying out to God for a child, and he still hasn't given you one. Or you're sick of your dead-end job. You know that you have so much more to offer. God could use you so much more elsewhere. You keep asking him to do it. But God hasn't opened the door for a new job. Or you want to be healed. Some of you at this church I know have suffered. You suffer from the same chronic, debilitating ailment. Maybe it's a physical infirmity. Maybe it's a mental, emotional disorder, anxiety, depression. You've suffered for years, and you keep crying out, pleading, begging God to heal you, and he still hasn't. Why not? What's God waiting on? I don't claim to have the answer to that. I can suggest maybe God is just not done pulling you toward himself yet. Maybe God wants you even closer to him, even more dependent on him. My daughter Ellery turned six this past week. She's getting to that age now where she wants to be totally independent, do everything on her own, until she needs me. She's hungry. She needs dinner. She's scared. She needs protection. She's bored. She needs my password to log in and watch a movie. <clears throat> My daughter draws closest to me when she needs me, when she depends on me for something. Think back on your life, friends. When have you prayed the most fervently? Was it when life was hunky-dory? When it was smooth sailing? Or when you didn't know where else to turn? You draw closest to God. I know this much. I know that if we want to see a movement of the Holy Spirit in our day, 
in our society, in our church, here at West Hills. If we desire to see more than one person come to saving faith through the ministry of this church in 2022, if we desire to see even one person come to saving faith this next year, we are going to have to be utterly dependent on the Lord. I'm no church historian, but I've studied enough to know that every single movement of the Spirit through church history, Pentecost, Reformation, both of the Great Awakenings, 18th century, the Jesus movement, every revival in the history of the church has always started with the same ingredient. It always starts with prayer. Because if you and I can't change even a single sinner's heart and cause them to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus instead, then we sure as heck aren't going to impact a whole culture, a whole society, spark a movement that reaches a whole generation for Christ. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. You know, it's interesting. I mentioned last week that there are 30 miracles recorded in the book of Acts. You want to guess how many times prayer is mentioned? It's 31. It's almost like God is driving home the point that he is the only one with the power to work miracles. We've got to go to him first in prayer before anything changes. And the greatest miracle of all, as I said last week, is when a sinner is saved by the power of the gospel. And so I'm excited this morning to announce a new initiative that we're launching here at West Hills this year. I had a congregant approach me after Last week's sermon, when I, again, I pleaded with you to pray with me this year that God would use West Hills, the ministry of this church, to save lost souls in 2022. And I had a brother come and tell me last week he was going to do that. He was going to carve out specific days throughout the year to dedicate specifically to prayer and fasting for the salvation of unbelieving loved ones of the people of this church and for our collective witness to them as a church. And I thought, man, that is such a great idea. Why wouldn't we just share that and expand it to the whole church? Why would we want one person responding to, you know, telling me, I'm actually going to do what you called us to do, pastor. We want to include you. And so this year I'm inviting you, I'm asking you to join me and our fellow Leaders here at West Hills, our staff and our elders who are already on board, we commit to spending one day per month in prayer and fasting for the salvation of your lost loved ones. We're going to call this the 1-8 prayer initiative based around Acts 1-8, the thesis verse for Acts and the subtitle of our sermon series, You Will Be My Witnesses, because before we can witness, we need the Holy Spirit. But before God sends the Spirit, it always starts with prayer. That's what the apostles are doing here. They pray that God, for 10 days, would you send your Spirit. So Luke 10.2, Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, you know the rest of the verse? You know Jesus' solution to the gospel supply chain shortage? Not enough workers, not enough laborers. Therefore what? Pray. Pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers. See, that's the thing. God loves your unbelieving coworker, your your wayward child, your lost 
neighbor across the street. God loves them even more than you do. Moreover, God is the only one with the power to change their heart. And so, it's all got to start with prayer. Asking the Lord, begging the Lord to do what only he can do. But we also pray that God would send us as his laborers to sow the seeds of the gospel. That's what we can do and that's what he's called us to do. To be his witnesses, to sow the seeds of the gospel. And then we trust him to do what only he can do and give the growth in that person's life. To cause that seed to take root in the soil of that person's heart. That's what God can do, but we have a job too. Our job is to pray and sow witness. And so this year, as I said, we're asking you on the 18th day of every month, 1-8, beginning this, this Tuesday, would you join us as a church in fasting and praying for those in our radius, our lives, who do not yet have a saving personal relationship with Jesus? I gave you homework last Sunday. I asked you to identify your personal mission field. Who is your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria? Who is God calling you to go and be a witness to? So this is your follow-up assignment for this week. You should have received a 1-8 prayer card stuffed in your bulletin there. I'm going to ask you to fill that out this morning with your full name. And then you can put as much or as little detail about the folks that you're asking us to pray with you for over the course of this next year as you want. You can put just their first name there. You can put the relationship, the context, you know, how much you know of what they know of the gospel and their response. You can, you can put whatever helps us be more targeted in our collective prayers for you as a church. But I understand that this might be sensitive for some of you. You might want to put just their initials. You might want to leave it totally anonymous, whatever. Some of you, we might have wives here who, who attend church with their husband. I know we do. And she's convinced he's not a believer, but he's on the email list. He's going to get the same email this week she is with the same list. So I get it. It's, it, it might be sensitive. That's why there's a box there that you can check at the bottom of the card to let us know whether your request is private and it's only to be shared with the elders and our confidential prayer team or whether this is a request that you want the whole church praying for this year. I want everyone praying, you know, for my, my neighbor across the street that I've been praying for, for for three years yet. God, would you move in their heart? I want, I want the, the church to join in, in fasting and praying for this person. And you can check that box, public. And then we ask you to just drop that 1-8 card in the offering box on your way out this morning. We're going to compile a list. And we'll email that out to the whole church. If you're not on our email list yet, we'd ask you to fill out one of those New to West Hills cards. The other card stuffed in your bulletin, give us your email, check the box, add me to the the email list so that you can be included and you can join us in praying and fasting throughout this year. We'll email you either this Monday night or Tuesday morning, the list attached and all the rest of the details, the the details I'm leaving out uh, for sake of time. What is fasting? How do I fast? Number three, to prepare for God's spirit to move. We need to organize. Now, that might seem counterintuitive to some of us at first, because unfortunately, we might be more prone to associate the Holy Spirit with chaos than with order. 
Some of us, we hear movement of the spirit and we start getting nervous. We you know, envision a cacophony of ultra-charismatic Christians all speaking in, incoherently in tongues at the same time. I'm going to try and show you next week that that's not actually what's, what's happening at Pentecost in Acts 2. Pentecost wasn't pandemonium. It was purposeful. And yet the, the Apostle Paul, he's clear in 1 Corinthians 14 that even though God's Spirit blows wherever it wills, wherever he wills, that God does so in an orderly fashion. So Paul says of our worship today, all things should be done decently and in order because God is not a God of confusion but of peace. And the apostles give us an example of that here, of organization here in verse 15 and following. A movement, even a Holy Spirit movement, needs three things to be successful. These are three very practical things. These, these aren't just spiritual ingredients. Yes, we need prayer. We need God to do what only, you know, it, it is spiritual. But these are they're just three very pragmatic things that every movement of the Spirit also needs. The less sexy side of ministry, if you want to put it that way. <clears throat> First, every movement needs leaders. God, of course, again, could choose to work in this world in a totally decentralized manner where God is the sole leader at the helm of the movement, and yet that's not what he does. Time after time, God shows us in his word and in history God chooses to work in his kindness and his sovereignty through human leaders working on his behalf and in keeping with his spirit. There's something, you know, this is something that, for instance, the emergent church movement gets wrong. Emergent church and its reaction against poor church leadership in the past seeks to just throw out the baby with the bathwater, do away with all human leadership. No leaders anymore, no pastors. That's not practical and it's also not biblical whether it was Luther and Calvin, the Reformation, Whitfield, Edwards, the Great Awakening, Peter and Paul here in the book of Acts. God has always anointed leaders to organize and to galvanize his church. And sure enough, here in verse 15, it is, it's Peter. It's take charge Peter, leader Peter. He's the first to step up, first to speak up, and first to lead. Second, a movement needs followers. Everyone can't be a leader then there'd be no one to lead, right? So we hear in verse 15 that the company of persons in this upper room upon whom the Holy Spirit is about to descend in chapter 2 was in all about 120. They were more or less, apparently, taking attendance in the early church. That's organizational, administrative work. Somebody was keeping count. How many people we got here? And the vast majority of those 120, we won't even meet by name, anywhere else in the book of Acts or in the New Testament. And yet, this movement doesn't happen without them. The early church movement, the, the first century explosion of the gospel, does not happen without these anonymous followers. I've said before, confession, I, I've said before in past sermons, that God turned the world upside down with just 12 guys. It's not accurate. He did it with 12 guys and his spirit and a group of 120 followers, a company roughly the size of those of us in attendance, probably even a few, a few smaller than, than those of you who are 
here this morning in this room. They were led by 12 guys, but it took all of them. Every single one of them had an important role to play in the mission, in the movement. Follower doesn't mean passive. Remember, biblically, the word for follower is disciple. Follower is far more synonymous with activity than with passivity. Think about Jesus' followers, disciples. They were, they were a lot of things in the Gospels. Hard-headed, you know, say what you want, but they were not passive. Even when they were behind the scenes, they were constantly on the move. They were walking hundreds of miles in Jesus' footsteps. They would go ahead of him to prepare the way for his ministry and, and the town they were going to come to the next day. They were collecting loaves and fishes and then getting the crowd to all sit down and quiet down in an orderly fashion so that Jesus could feed them. They were active. But before they could be leaders, they had to learn to be followers. The movement depends on such followers. Friends, if God is going to move mightily in our midst here at West Hills in the year to come, it won't just be because the staff and elders are on board. We all have an important role to play. What is your role here? Thirdly, last sub-point. These are all sub-points under point number three, organize. A movement needs effective processes. The, the people with the spiritual gift of administration are just, they're loving this. The rest of us are like, oh. Processes. Just take, again, this new 1-8 prayer initiative, for example. I may be the one championing the idea as the leader. You may even be getting excited about it, praying and fasting together with the church this year, participating as a follower, but none of it will get off the ground unless we've got processes in place to give it organization. We praise God for the, the alley tools. Where's alley? The alleys and the pastor thads and the Bill and Anna Connicks, the leaders of our, our church administration and new leader of the mission team and our prayer team, respectively, who are all gifted, way more gifted than me, with the spiritual gift of administration, turning a vision into a reality through a process. Somebody's got to, uh, you know, format and print off and cut and stuff the bulletins with those cards that are in your bulletin. Somebody's got to compile the, the email list tomorrow after you guys submit all the people you want us to pray for this year. Somebody's got to compile all that, make it look pretty, and send it out to the church. Praise God for those people. Here in verses 21 through 23, the specific process in view is a leadership secession plan. One of the Here's the context for the whole passage that we're talking about here. The context is one of the 12 disciples, Judas, has betrayed Jesus, and then he killed himself, which Luke records for us in graphic detail. Bowels gushed out. And so Peter suggests here that they need to replace him. Whether that's because Peter knew that 12 was a good, even, biblical number. 12 tribes of Israel after the 12 sons of Jacob. Or whether Peter was worried about there being an empty throne in the new heavens and new earth when Jesus returned. Jesus had told his disciples in Matthew 19, 28 that they would sit on 12 thrones beside him when he returned at the second coming. Maybe Peter's worried about one of them being open. Whatever the reason, they need to replace Judas. 
And processes need parameters. Not just any disciple will do as the new 12th apostle. There are certain qualifications that must be met as part of this leadership succession process. The candidates must be men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. This man must have been a witness not only to Jesus' death and resurrection, but to his life, his earthly ministry as well. Peter says that's all part of the gospel that God is sending us out to proclaim. Jesus didn't just die to be our Savior, he lived to be our Lord as well. He showed us the the life that we should have lived and didn't, why he had to die for us, and the kind of life that he wants to open up and make available to us if we submit to him as our Lord. And so, through these parameters in that process, they are able to narrow it down, verse 23, to two candidates, Justice and Matthias. One more quick important note here before we move on to point four. This is actually back in verse 14, but it's related to the point of organization. It's not enough to be organized. For a movement to succeed, you've also got to be unified. Organized and unified in your organization. Verse 14, they weren't just praying together. They were praying with one accord. They were unified in their mind and spirit and in purpose. Again, there's so much more that could be said about all of these points, but running out of time. Number four, discern. Obey, pray, organize, discern. If we want to see God's spirit move among us, we need to discern the ways that God is and already has moved in our midst to bring us to this point. This is verses 16 and 20. We see Peter discerning God's hand and God's plan, specifically as it had been foretold in the scriptures. Peter explains, look, the scripture had to be fulfilled. He's trying to help this group of 120. They're, they're struggling. They're probably struggling. Right? They're, they're probably struggling to understand, why did Jesus pick Judas in the first place? You know, what's that? Why, why are we having to wait so long for, for the Holy Spirit? Is he really, you know, really going to send him? Our faith waxes and wanes. And so Peter helps them by interpreting the scriptures. The scripture had to be fulfilled. It is written in the book of Psalms. And then he quotes King David from Psalm 69, verse 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8, respectively. Did you know that God had even written Judas into his plan of redemption? Like a thousand years before Jesus was even born, Indeed, before the foundation of the universe, God wrote Judas into the plan. That's what Peter's assuring them. Friends, God is always at work in our world and in our lives. The problem is we just don't always have the eyes of faith to see it, to discern it. Again, you have to imagine that after Jesus' betrayal, The disciples had a hard time discerning why did Jesus even pick him to join our ranks in the first place? We know that they had a hard time discerning God's hand in the crucifixion. God, this cannot be the plan. That's why Peter stood up to him in the first place. No, you're not going to the cross. How can that be part of the plan? Even here in Acts 1, they're still sitting here. They're praying. They're discussing in the upper room. You have to imagine they're still having a tough time discerning how in the world is it better for Jesus 
to, to ascend and return into heaven and leave us? Wouldn't it, I mean, what could be better than having Jesus right by your side? Answer, having him right in your heart. That's why Jesus said, it's, it's actually better. I know you don't understand it. It's actually better that I go back to the Father so I can send you the helper. What could be better than having Jesus alive as your rabbi? Having Jesus die for your sins as your Savior. Friends, God is always at work, even, maybe especially, in the difficult things that we go through in life. We need to pray for the faith and the discernment to be able to see it. But a big part of that, as Peter shows us here in verses 16 and 20, means that we have to understand the scriptures. If we're going to discern God's hand, God's will, God's plan, we have to know God's revealed will to us through his word, through the scriptures. Number five, we need to lament. To prepare for a movement of the Spirit, you, you lament. Just because you can begin to discern the ways that God is using the broken parts of your past for his own good purposes, to give you a hope and a future, to work all things together for your good, that doesn't mean that we st still don't lament. We still don't grieve. God might be using, as we said, God is using your infertility, using your underemployment, using your suffering, whatever it may be. He's using it. None of it is wasted. He's working it for your good. And yet, it doesn't change the fact that it's still hard, isn't it? When you're going through it, even after you've gone through it, it's still hard to have those struggles in your rearview mirror all the time behind you. We can't just forget the past. It's not healthy to try to. Some people say, you just got to forget the past. And just pretend like it didn't happen. Move on. It's not healthy. We have to make peace with the past. We have to work through, process the past. It can be difficult. It means you do things like grief, lament, cry. Some of the stuff I imagine them doing in the upper room for those 10 days. I imagine Peter's voice, his tone, as he's talking about Judas here in verses 17 through 19, I imagine it's a tone of lament. Like this, Jesus isn't the only one who's missing. Like there were 13 of us. Jesus is gone Judas is gone too. He was like a brother to them for, for three and a half years. They trusted him. He was their treasurer. They trusted him with their money. We all know how close that is to many of our hearts. I mean, they trusted this guy. He was like a brother. Now he's gone. But you've got to grieve the past. You've got to make peace with your past if you're ever going to be open to God's spirit leading you forward into a new future. You can't move forward if you're stuck looking back. But you're always going to be stuck looking back if you pretend like it didn't happen, if you don't process, work through it. Again, so much that could be said here. Lastly, number six, we've got to trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. We might be able to narrow it down to two choices. 
Justice Matthias, but at the end of the day, we leave it in the Lord's hands and trust him. That's what they did. They prayed again. They said, you, Lord, you who know the hearts of all, you show us which one of these two that you have chosen to take Judas's place. And then, and the last couple of verses here that everyone's been waiting for, the most interesting, maybe thought-provoking verses of the passage, they roll dice for it. That's what they do. That's what casting lots is. They roll dice. You say, well, that's not very spiritual. It can be. It can be when you know the truth of Proverbs 16:33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That the same God who causes all the most scientific, you know, predictable things, the same God who causes the sun to rise every morning caused the lot to fall to Matthias. Nothing is outside of God's providence. Jesus said a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without God not only knowing it, but ordaining it. Every purpose of the Lord comes to pass. You take the most seemingly random thing you can think of. A Christian knows that there's, there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. If you go home and win your family's game of Yahtzee this afternoon, it's because God wanted you to. That's true. God is a God of the dice. You say, well, then why don't y'all just pray and roll dice to make decisions at your monthly elders meetings? You know, you don't know what we do in those meetings. <laughs> you think this whole time, you know, we're wearing masks, we're not wearing masks. We're wearing... You think we've been following the CDC and the county guidelines. We've just been shooting craps every month. <laughs> Is that too soon? <laughs> Casting lots was a common way for God to reveal his will throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament here. But what is significant to note is that this, Acts 1, is the very last occurrence of God's people casting lots in the Bible, and it just so happens to stop a few verses before God sends them his Holy Spirit. I've already told you there's no coincidences. We don't cast lots anymore because we have two vitally important tools today in the church that the apostles didn't have in Acts chapter 1. God's spirit and God's word. You think about it, they're still authoring scripture. They're still living out the stories that the spirit's going to have to inspire Luke to record in his word years later. But now we have it. We have God's final, complete self-revelation to his people in these 66 inspired and errant books of the Bible. And we've got his spirit, too, to help us illuminate the study of his word, to help discern God's will through his word. So, I mean, between his spirit and his word, I think we can put the dice away, right? That's why we don't roll dice anymore. But we still have to trust him. We trust God's word, and we trust God's spirit to lead us into all truth. So obey, pray, organize, discern, lament, and then when all is said and done, we trust in the Lord. We trust that God will move as he has said that he will through his people to reach the ends of the earth with his saving news 
of the gospel of Jesus. Trust in the Lord.